And if we can proceed with, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Lim, for uh, a very insightful set of remarks kicking off our event. And if, we, if I can kindly ask our panelists to take their uh, seats uh, to have the first panel of the day. By the way, while they're being seated, I was planning to mention that later. Of course, we are, uh, we have the unique privilege to pay our respects to uh, Esben today for his contribution to Singapore and to global shipping. And I would like to say that um, to a large extent, uh, Capital Link is here because of Espen, because he was the one who reached out to us and he said, Nicholas, you are doing uh, events in a lot of places. You absolutely have to do uh, an event in Singapore as well. And of course, as you know, uh, when Espen calls, his, his calls are always answered. And here we are today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our session today on uh, navigating through industry transformation, geopolitics, sanctions, and world trade. I'm joined today by an esteemed panel of speakers here. Um, I'll introduce them one by one. So I'm joined by Mark O'Neill, President, Columbia Ship Management, uh, Intermanager. I'm joined by Nick Brown, Lloyd's Register, CEO, Jeremy Nixon. Jeremy Nixon of Ocean Ex um, Network Express, Khalid Hashin, uh, Managing Director of Pressure Shipping, Martin Kroger, CEO of German Ship Owners Association. So today we will go through uh, various questions relating to the current landscape, where we are at currently, um, the sanctions and the regulatory framework, and also uh, what these companies have been doing um, as a matter of best practice, and what do we see going forwards in terms of you know, decarbonization and future transformation. So without further ado, perhaps uh, we can uh, start with a recap of the last two years uh, by reference to the industry, the market, the profits, along with um, what we envisage uh, in terms of demand and supply uh, for 2023 and 2024. Perhaps, um, Khalid, you can um, take us through that. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, before I start, I'd just like a show of hands as to how many people know the name Harvey Campbell. No one? Okay, he's the guy who made the connection between the yield curve, the inverted yield curve, and recessions. And he now says that the current yield curve is flashing a false positive for three reasons. The first reason is, of course, that the unemployment rate is at an all-time low. The second reason is that households have got a lot more equity in them. And that has come from the fact that house prices have gone up significantly in the last two years, whilst mortgage rates were at their all-time lows. And the third reason, he says, is that this yield curve has been inverted for more than a year, and there's been no recession as yet. And that tells us that the corporate world has deleveraged significantly, has also slashed capex in a big way, and has slimmed down the workforce. So they're now a lean, mean fighting machine. And therefore, he says that 
with one caveat. If the central banks continue to raise interest rates, you will have a recession. If they don't, you won't have a recession. So this is the first myth that I wanted to bring out for you, that the yield curve is not necessarily going to be accurate this time. The second thing I want to say is that the Cassandras in shipping have all been saying that, oh, yes, China is working well, but so what? The rest of the world is going down. And that's, again, something that I suspect will not be really important, because if you look at 2022, 70% of all dry bulk movements took place within the developing world, and just 30% was left for the developed world. Of this 70%, China and India are part of the same thing. So China is the 800-pound gorilla in the dry bulk space. So let's look at some of the statistics of China. If you look at it in terms of GDP growth rates, the IMF bumped it up by 80 basis points to 5.2%. China itself came down and said it's just 5%. The actual quarter one GDP was 4.5%. And based on that, all the American big banks have come out to say that China's GDP will be between 100 and 150 basis points higher than what the IMF has predicted. So let's look at the actual numbers on the ground. So I'm going to compare Q1-23 versus Q1-22. And I'm going to then compare that with the annual growth or decline of 2022 over 2021. So if you look at iron ore, it was up by almost 10% in Q1. Compared to that, for last year, it was minus 1.6%. If you look at coal, it was up by 97% in the first quarter. But overall, for last year, it was down by 9.4%. If you look at steel production, in the first quarter, it was up by 5.3%. Last year, overall, it was down by 1.8%. Steel exports were up by 48%, by, sorry, by 52%, and last year was up by just 1%. And steel consumption in the first quarter in China was up by 2.1% versus last year's contraction of 2.3%. Now, to give you some historical context, I'm going to compare 2021, 2022, and then take you to 2023 and 2024. So if you look at 2021, these are uh, statistics from Clarkson's. Ton mile demand was up by 3.48%. Against that, net increase in deadweight ton terms for the dry bulk sector was up by 3.55%. And yet, pressure shipping turned out $137 million profit. If you look at 2022, Clarkson's are still estimating, they're not yet got a final number for it, uh, say that ton-mile demand shrank by 1.76%. And tonnage growth was at 2.86%. And yet, pressure shipping made $2 million more profit than 
in 2021. So we were at $139 million net profit. We then declared $200 million worth of dividends between the two years. In 2023, Clarkson's are forecasting a ton-mile demand growth rate of 2.2% versus that they say that the tonnage growth will be about 2.6%. And in 2024, they're looking at a 2.27% uh, tonnage uh, demand, uh, ton-mile de demand growth rate and a tonnage growth rate of just 0.4%. 2021, if you were to just close your eyes and look at a, make a mental visual picture, you would see that 2021 started off the first half of the year in a very low-key way, starting to move up. But the second half was dramatically higher. Coming to 2022, it is the exact mirror image of 2021. Started out reasonably strong, ended up quite weak. 2023 is a mirror image of 2022. It's starting out quite weak, will end up very strong. 2024 will be a flat year, but strong. First half, second half will be both similar. And 2025 will again be flat, but with a very high rate. So that's what we think about the future. Regulatory impact from EEXI and, C and CII, as per Clarkson's, will reduce tonnage by between 2 and 4%. And this is across 2023 and 2024. So you can see already that we should be having reasonably good years for both these, for both these years. Looking at the forward order book as of the start of quarter two, just 6.85%. Against that, the 20-year-olds are running at 8.11%. This ratio has been turned on its head for the first time since the start of the century beginning last year. And the ratio is getting wider and wider. If you look at the orders, new, new building orders placed in Q1 this year and compare it with Q1 2022, Q1 2021, and Q1 2020, then this is what you would see. 1.44 million deadweight tons were ordered in the first quarter of this year, compared to 6.16 million deadweight tons in Q1 2022, 9.43 million deadweight tons in Q1 2021, and 4.55 million deadweight tons in 2020. So if you look at it in percentage terms, today we are lower than 2022 by 77%, by 85% lower compared to 2021, and 68% below 2020. Why are owners not ordering ships? Especially when they've made as much money as we have in the last two years. And the answer to that is very simple. A, others have made much more money than us. For example, Jeremy on my right, will tell you how much more money they made. They made what we made in millions of dollars, they made in billions of dollars. So, uh, you know, they've crowded out dry bulk from the space. Similarly with gas carriers, similarly with car carriers, and similarly with tankers. Bell carriers are the poor cousins, and we are right at the bottom end of the food chain. Besides 
Shipyards don't like to build dry bulk ships. It's the lowest margin game for them. So again, we are at the bottom end of the food chain even there. So from this, you can see clearly that the forward position, that's why I said 2025 should be one of the really strong years that we will see. And just by the way, our results for last year and the year before last are our third best ever. So again, it tells you that we think that 2025 should be even stronger than what we've seen in, 20, in 2007 and 8 and 9. So that covers, I think, uh, Gregory, all that you had asked me to uh, speak on when you started this uh, session. Thank you very much, Khalid. Um, Martin, do you want to uh, perhaps share with us your experience from uh, COVID and the pandemic and also the war in Ukraine and how this has affected business uh, from, from your perspective? Just a, a brief one to supplement uh, Khalid's uh, very comprehensive answer. Thank you. Um, I think if we look back, I mean, I'm coming from the policy side of, of shipping, and uh, I think the criticality of uh, resilience was one thing that we actually learned over the last five years, and that especially the regulators learned, I hope, we hope, um, because if you don't involve shipping right at the start of actually making a regulation, then I think it gets very, very difficult. We also uh, saw a lot of attention of crews, which was a very difficult situation we faced, especially in COVID. And uh, we are very glad that this whole situation kind of calmed down over the last two years, especially. And I think Singapore was a prime example how to actually keep your ports open and enable crew change, which was one of the major issues we had uh, also positively dealt with in Germany and especially in Europe, which was almost the only region in the world where we could uh, do crew change. And I think, Mr. Lim, uh, you would agree that in Singapore it was actually handled quite well. And I think key was that you involved industry quite early in the process. And if we look at the situation nowadays, especially around Europe, with the war in Ukraine, I think that, and, and, the, um, uh, and the sanctions that we face with Russia, I think that is also a key to actually how to make a positive regulation that is impacting the industry, um, um, but not hindering industry to actually perform. That is to involve your shipping industry early. And if there is a lesson to take away from uh, COVID, I think everybody realized that you can't move international trade without ships. And international trade relies 100% on shipping. And if you close down ports and you know, sanctions the ship that are actually waiting in front of your port and let them wait for a month or so, then of course international trade comes almost to a standstill. But another lesson learned is it's not only shipping, it is also the land side. It is predominantly the land side which caused problems in COVID because it was the ports closing down. And if we look at the situation we had in the US, at Long Beach especially, um, we saw that the main problem was actually in the ports, uh, the shifts of the port workers, uh, the shortage of trucks, of truck drivers. There was also a problem when uh, Shanghai was closed down because the port itself wasn't really closed down. It was the land-based infrastructure before the port that was closed down and the lack of lorry drivers that we experienced around the area. So um, com 
actually not only looking at your ship side, but also involve the land side infrastructure. Um, that is also a very important lesson to learn from, from the COVID experience. And uh, the last one would be uh, if we look at the sanction structure that we are dealing with in the moment um, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. Um, transparency is also key, also from the regular uh, side, uh, regulator side, because if you introduce sanctions, they hit your ships that are out in the ocean immediately. And it is important to keep up a very transparent communication with your ship owners and to explain what you're actually sanctioning. Because we had a number of cases where we had ships sailing the oceans with sanctioned cargo, which, where the sanctions hit overnight, basically. And uh, it was very difficult to actually clear the situation on how to deal with your ships, which are currently sailing or which were currently sailing, how to actually deal with the sanctions in place. So yeah, as a start off, I would say that's it. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin, for bringing us, uh, sort of uh, giving us an extra uh, supplement to the background. So I think we are at the current uh, market. Um, perhaps Jeremy could share with us uh, details or you know, what he forecasts is the latest supply chain uh, dynamics uh, from his perspective, and that would you know, uh, be helpful for the audience. Jeremy? Specific to the Ukraine, Russia, or not? Um, generally. Local Germany, okay. Yep, yep. Okay, so yeah, we all know about the Ukraine Russia situation, which is obviously terribly tragic and um, really awful in terms of the human impact and the environmental impact. But as we know, trade continues to flow. Uh, eight weeks ago, I was happened to be in Istanbul, and uh, over the two days, looking out of my hotel window and the office window, a lot of ships are moving up and down. It's just the color of the ships change and the ownership changes, but the, the cargo still moves. And I think that's symptomatic of our whole global trading system. As we learned during COVID, uh, shipping is extremely resilient in terms of moving product through all sorts of difficult situations. We're now faced uh, in the last year, post-COVID, with a tremendous political uncertainty now, a lot of economic sanctions, a lot of developments there. So in addition to the obviously UK and Russia situation, the situation between the US and China continues to ratchet up economically, and we have other areas of, of challenge as well. But the shipping industry will continue to keep moving, and products will continue to find their way, like water running down a hill, to, to, to the bottom of the valley. Uh, they will just move through different gateways or, or different operations or different hubs, and uh, that will continue. But I think what we can say, uh, from the container shipping side at least, is that we are seeing a a deleveraging in trade between the US and, and China. Um, just in the last 12 months, uh, historically, 12 months ago, probably the US was importing about 45% of its imports in containers from Russia. That's about down, uh, sorry, from China. That's down to about 35% today. Uh, many, many companies in the US are looking to, to reduce down the amount of imports they've got coming from China. Uh, of course, the beneficiaries be Southeast Asia, particularly Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, India, really coming on very, very strongly as well. And of course, Japan and Korea have done well as well. My own feeling on this is that it, it's, uh, it, it, it will start to bottom out in due course. Um, it's, it's not uh, going, to, going to see a significant further reduction of where it is today, simply because, as we all know, there's a certain amount of production in the world, and you can't just turn it on, turn it off, and move it so easily and all the ships and all the ports won't be able to cope. 
but the nearshoring is going on, particularly in the areas to do with the uh, Biden's uh, in, 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 uh, Inflation Reduction Act, as we've seen in the areas of uh, um, sustainability and, and alternative energy, um, semiconductors, etc. That area is going to see a huge change in the next five to ten years. In terms of Europe, um, we are continuing to maintain the normal traditional ways of sourcing Europe through the Mediterranean and the North Europe gateways. That will continue. I think from a container shipping side, we just have to deal with slower growth rates going forward on that. The US will continue to import a lot of its product, probably less China, a lot more from, as I say, Southeast Asia. But also, a lot is also moving across the transatlantic as well. And also, Latin America and Africa will come into play in due course. So markets are global. We'll continue to see a lot of change happening. We have to be lean and agile in shipping. We have to be there to serve the customer and within the confines of the sanctions and the economic regulations, find the best way to move the cargo and keep the supply chains moving. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jeremy. So I think briefly, uh, Martin has uh, touched based on the issues relating to sanctions uh, recently and also uh, perhaps the regulatory framework that we are operating in these days are getting more and more complex um, and there is some divergence between the global and the local regulatory framework. So um, Nick, perhaps you could share your experience with us in terms of the current regulatory landscape that you're operating in and also uh, what your views and recommendations are. Yeah, thank you. And first of all, thanks to Nicholas and the Capital Link team for bringing us together at the beginning of the week. Um, clearly, um, we can't move at the pace of the slowest in terms of regulatory development. Um, and I know everybody has high expectations for IMO and MEPC 80, um, but we've seen obviously in recent days with the EU um, not slowing down, moving ahead with emission trading schemes, um, looking to um, increase the scope of the MRV uh, regulations to not only uh, cover CO2 but cover methane and NOx. Uh, looking to try and close the gap between um, the commercial affordability of tomorrow's fuels to the commercial affordability of today's fuels and trying to stimulate investment in, uh, in green fuels or, or renewables such as the uh, um, requirements going forward for, for vessels going into Europe around renewable fuels of a non-biological uh, origin. So I think we uh, Unfortunately, whilst I am uh, certain every single person in this room would prefer to see one set of regulations, shipping's global and the IMO should be a big advantage for our industry in any form of transition. I think we're heading headlong towards regional regulations in the short term. That said, we only have to look back three years, doesn't seem that long ago since IMO 2020, and the uh, move to low sulfur fuel, where if we are given enough warning, and if we have all of the stakeholders involved, fuel producers, ports, bunkering suppliers, uh, ship management companies, shipping companies, crewing, training, centers, etc., we've proven that we can move the entire industry from one fuel to another fuel overnight. So things are not impossible. I do hope that the European regulations will uh, assist us in getting 
Um, greener ships, new engines, new fuels tested, piloted along green corridors around clean energy hubs. Um, but I, I, I don't believe we can expect a, a global regulation for all of us to follow in the short term. Thank you very much, Nick. So I think um, you have also stressed on you know, the need for human uh, resources to help ensure that our companies are running uh, properly and to ensure uh, success. So I think people in the room as well, uh, we're all needed here for the industry transformation part. So to briefly uh, cover uh, talent and human resources, perhaps uh, Mark, you can uh, guide us as to what uh, Columbia Group or you know, in general you see in the market, what people are doing to ensure that you know, uh, they secure success in this very volatile market and to ensure you know, industry transformation. Sure, thank you, Gregory. One of the disadvantages of sitting up here and looking at yourself on the screen is you realize how much older you look. Uh, and I, I'm just thinking, I've got to find a plastic surgeon who's going to be very well uh, engaged over the next few months to try to improve things. Um, I was um, in Paris last week, and uh, we were speaking to a company that provides seed funding for new ideas, which uh, we're getting into, and I know uh, a, a lot of the people in the audience are already involved in, for new ideas in this uh, amazingly dynamic industry that we operate in. And this particular seed fund uh, individual had previously worked with Nokia back in the 1990s and, and uh, early 2000s when those of us old enough to know all carried the Nokia phone. Nokia was not just uh, dominating, it was uh, all pervasive. Everybody had that Nokia phone. And I was talking to him about what he described as the Nokia moment. Uh, and the Nokia moment was the fact that this company focused totally on the tech and not enough on the operating system. It didn't see beyond the tech until Apple not just knocked on its door but swept past. And Nokia went from being the all-successful company it was to a, to a more of a, a sideshow in that mobile telephone uh, industry. And it struck me uh, that our own industry is at that Nokia moment unless we actually lift our sights up and, and look over the horizon. I've always said that, that our industry needs to be uh, relevant and compelling and look ahead and be client-facing. We need to see ourselves more as an activity servicing our respective clients rather than as a, a sector specific. Nick just talked about regulation for shipping. This industry, this sector is so fragmented and so specialized now, is it actually a sector at all or is it an activity serving its client sectors, be they in commodities, be they in leisure, be they uh, in energy? And I really do think that we are at that Nokia moment as a sector. There is no way that one regulation is going to apply to each and every jurisdiction involved in shipping or each and every, every different specialized sector in shipping. And if we try too hard to find that regulation that does it, we'll tear ourselves uh, apart. That's why the Columbia Group has focused over the last few years on more of a platform of services, an integrated maritime energy leisure, logistics, platform, serving its respective clients' needs. And I think 
in all of our various client sectors, we have to optimize. We have to optimize everything. We have to optimize the maintenance of our vessels and adopt preventative maintenance techniques. We have to optimize the bunker supplies to those vessels, the lube oil supplies to those vessels. We have to optimize the training of our crews, the specialized training of our crews on individual different vessel types and individual different specialized vessel sectors, harnessing the technologies that we have available to us, to us now, the e-learning systems, the virtual reality training, uh, uh, systems that we have and can utilize. We have to optimize the recruitment process and perhaps look at different models for recruiting our seafarers. Our seafarers are all on social media. They're all very well able and uh, taught how to use social media and look to social media for movement within the industry. And we have to optimize, obviously, the operation of our vessels, which is why wearing our ship owner's hat, uh, not just uh, the manager's hat, we thought, how do we, have, uh, how do we cater for this need to optimize in this new world that we face? And we decided on uh, a particular product called OneLink Performance Optimization Solutions because it gave us all of that. And I really do think we need, all of us, need to look at one solution, whatever it might be, that enables us to uh, optimize the performances in our industries. But of course, people are what is really important. And I think we all need to put people at the front, the middle, and at the end of whatever we do. And I think COVID taught us all that in rafts, how important people were to this industry. You know, a bit like digitalization before, uh, a bit like digitalization before COVID, now we're talking about tech, we're talking about decarbonization. But digitalization and technology are really enablers. They're not going to differentiate any one of us from the other. Our people are what differentiates us from each other and how much we invest in those people and how much um, we train those people uh, and provide those people with lifelong learning facilities. I think as an industry, we really do lack uh, sophisticated human resource management. We haven't kept up with other sectors in how we deal with people, whether they are ashore or whether they're on board our vessels. ESG, we're getting to grips with ESG. Isn't it fantastic? Isn't it a great flag to rally, about, rally around? Isn't it a great flag for our people to rally around? So ESG, very, very important for our people, very, very important to attract and retain, particularly our younger workforce, but proper human resource management, looking at people, uh, whether they're on board ships or ashore, looking at their careers, looking at their appraisals, looking at their training needs, encouraging them to step maybe out of their comfort zones and into other uh, activities within our industry that they can get uh, involved in. And it's a massively wide-ranging uh, industry uh, and sector that we operate in. So I think people, very, very important uh, to our business. We have to look after our people much more importantly, but we have to realize, I really do think, that that Nokia moment, uh, not just for our activities, but also for our people, is staring us in the face.
Thank you, Mark. So I think you have briefly touched on ESG, which is a very topical uh, sort of question these days. Um, so leading on to the, this topic would be the question of decarbonization and the, and the hot topic of decarbonization as well. Uh, we can briefly touch on decarbonization. So perhaps, uh, Jeremy, could you uh, share with us you know, some of the decarbonization targets that you guys have and perhaps some of the key pathway objectives uh, that one uh, has? Yeah, thank you, Gregory. I, I think um, all of us in the audience are pretty much up to speed with the IMO developments up until now. And uh, as Nick's alluded to, the Fit for 55 in Europe. Um, so we have this regulatory framework, which is gradually becoming clearer. But many of us would like to see it to be a lot, lot clearer uh, within the next three, four, five months as we lead into uh, MEPC 80 and, uh, of course, COP 28 in Dubai in, in uh, November, December. Um, I think uh, all of us uh, understand the importance of the environmental issues and, of course, all of us uh, ultimately as owners or operators of tonnage want to make sure that we have no stranded assets, that we're heading in the right direction. Uh, I personally have kind of like three hats on today. One is... Uh, CEO of ONE. Of course, we are building forward new ships, and we are going for future-ready ships. But secondly, uh, also as the co-chairman of the World Shipping Council, which represents all the container shipping lines. And thirdly, also as one of the governing board members here for the Global Center of Maritime Decarbonization in Singapore. The Maritime Decarbonization in Singapore recently did a survey across the industry, uh, a very extensive survey. And basically, uh, you could segment customers, uh, sorry, uh, shipping companies down into three types, the kind of front runners, the followers, and the conservatives. And that was based around whether they had a green strategy department, whether they had a plan to decarbonize, uh, whether they were aware of some of the issues and how they were working through that. I think this is where we, you know, we, we know how to, as an industry, I think we know how to build the ships. I think, I think we'll get the designs right. We know how to work the classification societies, the yards, the engine manufacturers. We know how to, to, to finance ships. I, I very passionately believe this industry knows how to move it forward. And people like the International Chamber of Shipping and many of the other trade associations are working now very, very diligently in that direction. Many of you represent or sit on boards here which are moving and want to move in that direction. But unfortunately, it comes back to our regulators. So the front runners need to be able to keep pushing on and the followers need to keep following. But we need that clarity on, on the regulatory front. So we really, really need to know that we are going to go for net zero by 2050, that we really are going to start to bring in real proper market-based measures, whether it's a carbon levy or it's a fuel standard, so that we can continue to push ahead and others will join and the fuel companies will also realize that this is really going to happen. And then I think we can, we can move, move the dial pretty strongly in the next three, four years. Um, so it's all around, frankly, MEPC, uh, 80 this this June and uh, also COP28 to keep moving this forward and we all want to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. So, Martin, uh, on this question, uh, do you have a view as to whether decarbonization by 2050 is realistic and also how should we approach uh, decarbonization by reference to existing uh, ships? Well, ideally approach it internationally, of course. I mean, if we, our greatest worry is this uh, regionalization of, of uh, decarbonizing uh, regulation. Um, because if we look at what's happening in Europe, that's all fine. But once you have differing international legislation 
uh, coming into force, that is, the situation just gets very, very difficult. And Europe is not the only region that is actually introducing emission trading systems. I mean, we have emission trading systems all around the world. China has an emission trading system, but hasn't included shipping yet. But where are we heading once uh, uh, the, the, this uh, huge economy decides to actually include shipping? Then you have uh, at least two different systems, and that also means you, the, 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 uh, you, you will probably enter a period where you double pay for your CO2 emissions, and that is actually something that needs to be avoided. So we, we really need IMO to move forward and decide on uh, pricing carbon, but also on the life cycle assessment of the future fuels, because uh, in the end, you all know it, we are not the ones producing fuels, it's the fuel suppliers or the fuel producers that actually need to be uh, in line with the regulation of IMO as well, and, and that will be the next hurdle from, from my perspective. How can you actually reach out to the fuel suppliers and regulate them? Because for now, IMO has always said that is a commercial issue, that is not something for uh, IMO or for the international regulator to actually approach. All they do is, you know, give out guidance on life cycle assessments, but that's basically it. So there might be a necessity to also bring the fuel suppliers on board and uh, enter regulation with them. Thank you, Martin. So, Mark, what are your views then on the decarbonization uh, debate and, you know, the context of uh, fossil fuels? You know, Jeremy talked about uh, front-runners, followers, and conservatives. I, I don't see uh, ourselves as an organization or, or many of our clients as, as any of those. If we, as I said before, face our clients, different clients, different sectors will require different fuels. Um, and, what, you know, the cruise, the cruise sector may require electricity for the last five or last ten in and out of port or in certain regions of the world. Certain regions of the world will always require or in, will be able to use fossil fuels because they'll need to catch up. So I, I think uh, front runners, followers and conservatives, uh, yes, there's a generalization, but again, client facing will require um, different, different fuels. Um, I do think, and I, and I said this at this organization, this uh, capital link in, in New York recently, I do think that we need to change the narrative on uh, decarbonization. Decarbonization doesn't mean zero fossil fuels. Uh, it does not even mean zero carbon. Uh, the narrative or the discussion should be about emission, not about carbon. Carbon is not a swear word. Uh, and if we change that narrative, then I think we'll be much better able to avoid that Nokia moment and, and face the, uh, the market uh, in, in the future. Uh, I do think that uh, this whole stop the oil movement is again the wrong narrative. We should be talking about carbon capture. We should be uh, talking about carbon removal, but that is not the same narrative as using fossil fuels. By way of example, uh, one of the um, biggest surprises recently was when the German car industry vetoed the latest EU legislation on uh, combustion engines and using fossil fuels. The German car industry recognized that there was a future for the diesel engine and the petrol engine, but with appropriate measures uh, in place to uh, uh, remove or capture the carbon. That is hugely significant. It is massively in line with what Jeremy is saying. Where are we going? What is the future going to be? Because if you apply that, and bearing in mind that one of the biggest engine manufacturers uh, uh, for our industry 
is also German. If you apply that logic to our industry, then it's perfectly possible to have the present engines on board our vessels burning fossil fuels but removing carbon. That would transform the whole narrative and transform the whole discussion. So I think we need to keep our options very, very, very much open. And again, if you look at what our clients are requiring, there is going to be a whole plethora of different alternative fuels which our clients require, specifically require. Um, but we have to be flexible uh, and client-facing in making those choices. Thank you, Mark. So I think as an ending question I have for Nick would be, um, as the maritime industry transforms, how do we ensure that everyone is brought along and no one's left behind? Um, quite simply, get involved. I think Jeremy's categorized um, the three sectors quite, quite, quite well. I think, though, the, the front runs are increasing, um, and it doesn't take too much, in my opinion at least, to get started. Uh, if you look at some of the collaborative uh, programs that are going on, we are now evolving how we talk to each other, all of the stakeholders, uh, differently to what we did in the past. In the past, class societies and shipyards and designers, engine makers would work together on a design and then we'd hope someone would actually go and order it and um, sometimes got surprised when they didn't. I think nowadays when you look at some of the best programs, um, we've got um, ship owners, fuel producers, not today's fuel producers, often some of the world's biggest chemical companies who are gonna be the future fuel producers, bunkering uh, companies, port authorities, engine makers, ship owners, uh, shipyards, class, all working together with charterers, who of course are critical in all of this, to actually make the next generation of, um, of vessels viable. I think the other thing that we've not yet touched on, and I, and I wanna touch on before we close, is just how big an opportunity for shipping there is to be the supplier of future fuels. Yes, of course, we have to focus on our two to three percent of CO2 that we produce, but there is no chance at all that major economies, Japan, Korea, Germany, etc., who are major energy imports, are going to be able to live up to their Paris commitments if shipping doesn't supply them with new forms of energy. The only way this planet is going to decarbonize is if we are supplying future fuel. And today, 36% of our tonnage carries energy. I suspect we will need much more of an energy-carrying fleet, whatever that energy is, in the future. And that's a huge opportunity we shouldn't miss. Thank you very much, Nick. So I think that's all I had for the panel. Thank you very much for your participation. <laughs>